I was a Marine officer, kind of landed in the close protection world. It's been 20 years now. You know, I ended up protecting a variety of folks, executives who are in high-risk situations to dignitaries, including some heads of state, celebrities, families and kids, soccer moms, CEOs of Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies, law enforcement, military, et cetera. And it was a very interesting time really learning how to protect people in organizations and really understanding the nature of violence in the real world. It is good to have a lifeguard, but ultimately you should know how to swim. I decided to shift gears from protecting people in organizations to really teaching them how to protect themselves, trusting your gut and trusting that that intuitive vibe, that radar that will warn us in advance that we may be being targeted. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is a close personal friend of a close personal friend of mine. And he happens to be one of the world's leading thought leaders in the arena of protection. He is the author of the upcoming book, Live Ready. He is the creator of the Live Ready philosophy, and he is the founder of the company Live Ready, where he provides consulting and protection services to some of the leading executives, celebrities, and dignitaries of our time. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Sam Rosenberg. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you so much, Nikki. I appreciate that wonderful introduction. Yeah, you bet. You bet. I'm the Bruce Buffer of podcast introductions. If you watch UFC, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's awesome. Love it. <laughs> Sam, it's great to have you here on the show. Dave uh, Grossman is a real good friend of mine. Um, he and I are actually going to be doing a book together. We had a talk about it yesterday, and uh, he Thanks. has been on my shows a total of three times on my various shows. And when he says to me, Nikki, you need to interview Sam Rosenberg. I mean, that's an automatic. Yeah, absolutely. Bring him on board. And then when I got to know who you are and what you did a little bit, I was excited to speak to you. So the folks that listen to this show tend to be outside of the military and law enforcement. I think society's great heroes because they're the ones who have the courage to dream, to believe in a vision, a mission greater than themselves that's going to help them serve people, customers, serve employees, serve their families, serve themselves, serve God. And they listen to the show not because of me, because I'm here every week. They're probably a little bored of me sometimes, except for my crazy antics. They're here because they want to hear from you. They want to learn from you. They want to imbibe what it is that you can teach them and you can give them from your heart and soul. But before they can do that, man, before they can open themselves up to your wisdom, they got to get to know you. So tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great Sam Rosenberg? Oh, 
Thank you, Nikki. Well, uh, I'll give you the short version first. Okay, 1996, uh, I got out of the Marines. I was a Marine officer, uh, kind of landed in the close protection world. Basically, I, I think of that as a fancy pants way of saying bodyguarding. Um, you know, I ended up protecting a variety of folks from executives who were in high risk situations to dignitaries, uh, including some heads of state, uh, you know, some celebrities. And it was a very interesting time really learning, if you will, how to protect people in organizations and really understanding the nature of violence in the real world. Um, and But I developed a, a personal philosophy. And in 2003, um, I shifted gears. To me, it is good to have a lifeguard, but ultimately you should know how to swim. And I decided to shift gears from protecting people and organizations to really teaching them how to protect themselves. And uh, it's been 20 years now, and I've worked with people from all different walks of life, from you know families and kids to uh, soccer moms to CEOs of Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies to everyone in between, law enforcement, military, et cetera. And, you know, what we focus on basically is personal security. And it's in giving people the same skills and tools that we use to protect public figures in a way that is meaningful for them and their daily lives. Um, and it's been an interesting journey. I mean, when we look at the dynamics of all the things that we address and how we address it um, from the standpoint of training, uh, I also have a, you know, a second aspect of my company. We do a lot of security consulting and threat assessments, things like that. So we're actively still involved in helping navigate violence and having, helping navigate difficult situations for people. But my primary focus in life and my real mission has always been to empower others and to be able to teach them how to protect themselves, their families, their organizations. I find that absolutely fascinating. So about six years ago, just a few days ago, um, one of my best friends was murdered in cold blood here in Toronto. He was eating dinner at a fancy high-end steakhouse and a, a kid in a hoodie with the drawstrings drawn where you could only see his nose and his eyes, walked up to his table, pulled out a gun and shot him four times. Um, He's one of the greatest human beings I know. I was just thinking about him and posting about him on social media today. Uh, his name was Simon Giannini. God rest his soul. He's a father of two boys who are exactly the same age as my sons. Mm -hmm. And I felt completely hopeless and helpless. There was nothing I could do. I wanted to see his perpetrators brought to justice. They still haven't been. There have been no arrests in the case. And my mentor at the time is a man by the name of Mark Von Muser. Mark used to be Anthony Robbins's director of coaching and training. And um, Tony Robbins um, worked with a guy by the name of Tim Larkin. Uh, and Tim um, taught people, ordinary people, how to protect themselves. So Mark knew Tim and said, hey, Tim's doing this course. Why don't you and Teresa come and do this course? So we went to LA. We signed up for the course. We did the course. And I got to tell you, it was what got me out of feeling hopeless and helpless is that I had some knowledge then to do something. Now, have I practiced 
What I learned? No, I haven't. A few times, a couple times I've done some course. I did another course with him. I did a couple other things. But what I can tell you that I that I did do was I learned, you know, how to have some of those things that I learned be in my DNA. Even if it's not in my DNA on a daily basis, I, I went through the process and heaven forbid that something were to happen, I think I could do something to protect myself. So I really appreciate men like you who go out and do what you do to be of service to people because violence is a real thing. And Dave Grossman was on my podcast a few weeks ago and he was saying violence is worse than ever right now. And I'm wondering, you know, if you could maybe unpack that and delve into that for me for a little bit. Sure. And I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, You know, it's hard to find people nowadays that have not been touched in some fashion by violence in our society. And, um, you know, Dave Grossman, uh, you know, very generously wrote the forward to my book. And, um, you know, he actually laid out a lot of the argument of, you know, how we are functionally living in one of the most dangerous societies, not just in the United States, but in, you know, when we look globally, um, you know, our, our global society is one of the more dangerous times, one of the most dangerous times, most dangerous societies we are living in, um, in so many different ways. Uh, you know, medical technology is holding the murdered rate down. So, you know, what we look at from the standpoint of understanding the data is a lot of times people look at, well, how often are people dying as a result of homicide or as a result of people trying to kill them? But the reality is it, it only tells you a very small piece of the puzzle because what we're actually seeing is, is that um, violence in many ways uh, that would result in death just a few years ago are not simply because of technology like first responders carrying tourniquets or because of the emergency services and communications being what they are, that we can get people to hospitals and get response, emergency response so quickly. So it's only talking about part of the picture and the basic estimates. And I would defer entirely to Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's research on this in terms of better understanding this in the, in the details. But the general perspective is things are significantly more dangerous now, including something along the lines of you know, three to 10 times more dangerous than it was just a few years ago. And this doesn't even discuss the massive uptick in homicides and actual incidences of violence that we've seen just in the COVID era, you know, in the last few years, which are unprecedented. Um, The dynamic, though, of, and just mentioning, kind of circling back to something you talked about, Nikki, with regard to your situation, seeking training. Um, just to, to tell you how important that is and how great it is that you actually got some training under your belt, you know, the reality of it is that we simply don't rise to the occasion. You know, people have this belief that, you know, they, they're a high performer in other ways. They're a they're business executive. They make good decisions on a regular basis. They make high pressure decisions. And they believe that that behavior or that skill set would translate over into the management of a critical incident in the moment. And the reality is there's an old quote by a, a Greek poet and a warrior poet named Archilochus. It's about a 2,500-year-old quote that says that we don't rise to the occasion, we fall to the level of our training. Yes, I've and, heard that. 
you know, the reality of it is it's not just training, it's just experience. So absent experience, what we are more likely to do is freeze in the moment of truth than we are to be able to perform. And, you know, the, the critical dynamic of training, regardless of whether it's Tim Larkin, my training, whatever, is to make sure that you have some prior plans and processes put in place. And uh, just to mention, by the way, I actually know of Mark uh, Von Musser. I know him. Uh, he probably doesn't remember me, but I remember him. He's a pretty impressive individual. He is. Uh, and I certainly understand and know of Tim Larkin's work. Yeah, Mark um, Mark is my business uh, coach and has mm-hmm. been for 10 years. Um, great man. He speaks at a number of our events, both uh, has done so live and over Zoom. Yeah, he's uh, very great, impressive. Great very that you impressive. know Great that you know him. A, a lot of what we do comes from um, how he mentors us. So, mm-hmm. yeah, awesome stuff. So, awesome. brother, tell me about the genesis of Live Ready as a philosophy for people to take on in their lives to protect themselves in case violence has to be the answer. Yeah. So, you know, my core philosophy, if you actually break it down into, I have these two very simplistic interrelated philosophies. And the first philosophy is that is what I call the myth of helplessness. Okay. Um, The myth of helplessness to me is kind of summarized by the old story about the circus elephant. You know, how do you train a circus elephant? You take a baby elephant when it's small, you chain it into a stake in the ground, and this little baby elephant will pull and pull on that chain until eventually it just gives up. And what this means is that when it's the largest, most powerful land mammal on the planet, when it's fully grown, a human handler can lead it around on the end of a rope. And in the mind of the elephant, it's helpless to resist. Uh, You know, when I first heard that story, you know, it really resonated because it is the the very definition of learned helplessness. And the thing is that I personally believe that we have all been similarly conditioned uh, by well-meaning people in society, by, you know, people that, that, you know, we, that don't know any better, but who try to provide advice. Um, and the overarching message has been to some extent or another leave it to the professionals, you know, call 911, you know, in, in the schools nowadays with zero tolerance policies, it reinforces the notion that children have to be victims. They can't protect themselves. If they, you know, can't seek help from an authority figure, you know, they, they basically um, ultimately are punished equally to someone who is perpetrating a crime. Um, so, you know, there's all of these factors that go into the notion that we are fundamentally helpless to resist in the face of certain kinds of violence. But my argument has always been that we are never helpless as long as we can control one factor if that factor is our mind and our ability to think and make decisions under pressure, which goes back to this original notion that how do we make decisions under pressure? Well, if we're faced with a gun or if we're faced with a violent you know, incident and we have not practiced what to do in those situations, or if we have not thought through, what are my plans? What are my escape routes? How do I manage this? What would I do in the event of? Then we are more likely to simply shut down in a degree of indecision and panic or paralysis and lose control of that situation entirely, regardless of how good we are in the other facets of our lives. 
The second interrelated philosophy is what I call the myth of randomness. And the idea here is the myth of randomness to me, and this comes from my my work, if you will, doing threat assessments and, and dealing with violence. And what the myth of randomness is, is that violence simply isn't random. All right. You know, we have a tendency to want to label violence random and we hear it all the time in our society. So you have the news media calling violence random on a daily basis. You have people using language where they say things like someone just snapped or no one saw it coming. And the reality of it is that violence is actually a process that is almost as predictable and observable as the changing seasons if you know what to look for. You have to be in a position to see the signs, but if you know what you're looking for, you can see these things happening in such a way that you can start to diffuse or deflect or respond early in the event. Um, the problem I have with this notion that violence is random is that it, it almost abdicates our personal responsibility. It suggests that if violence is random, it is therefore unpredictable. And if it is unpredictable, then what possible you know, responsibility do we have to prevent it or to respond to it more competently? But we all know that the lifeguards, as well-meaning as they may be, are going to be running to the sound of the guns. They're going to be coming to help. But the reality is they're never going to be there in the moment of truth when we need them. We need to know how to swim. So the idea here is that throughout every one of my training programs, whether we're addressing critical incident response, such as active shooter response, or we're addressing security for kids going to college, right? And learning, what do you teach a young girl, for example, who is heading off to college as a freshman? and is going to be faced with potentially experienced persuasion-oriented predators who use charm and persuasive ability to create opportunities. How do you prepare someone like that to be able to recognize danger and to be able to avoid those situations from escalating to a point where they have a real issue? Uh, The fighting back and how do you get yourself out of a bad situation is the final piece of the puzzle, and it's absolutely critical But what I like to do is provide people, first and foremost, the soft skills, you know, how to recognize danger, what to look for, how to overcome some of this mythology that we are helpless or that, you know, things are random and we're out of control and it just happens like being struck by lightning. And how do we start to exercise a philosophy of control over our lives that makes sense? I like it, man. This is this is really really cool stuff. So, let's talk about um, what you said around the myth of randomness, right? Mm-hmm. You said that violence simply isn't random, and I agree with you. You said that violence is a process that is as predictable as changing seasons if you know what to look for, and I agree with you on that. And that's part of what Tim Larkin taught me back in 2018 when I went and I did his program in March of mm-hmm. 2018 originally. But my question for you is, for the benefit of my listener, Mm -hmm. what do you need to look for? So the most important thing to understand for simplicity is to understand, I'm going to give you a model. Okay. And I call it the timeline of violence. All right. So if we look at any violent attack, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about a terrorist attack, a predatory attack, you know, a road rage situation. It makes no difference what level of violence we're talking about. 
what happens is the the process ex- extends, if you will, along a linear progression that I call time. Time stands for target selection, interviewer intelligence gathering, method of attack, and then escape exploitation. Okay, so it's an acronym. So let's take a very simple example um, that everyone's familiar with: the 9/11 terrorists. Okay, so. In 9-11, imagine before the attack, one of the bad guys comes to the group and says, hey, guys, I got a great idea. Let's blow up the World Trade Center. So what we have there is target selection, all right, is we've got the proposed target of the World Trade Center. Another one says, I got an idea. Let's fly an airplane into the building. So now what we have is a proposed method of attack, okay? Well, the question is, well, why don't they just go for it? Well, they don't just go for it because inherently there's an an inherently high degree of potential for failure in that mission simply because they haven't really vetted the plan, okay? So the concept is they enter into what we call the eye of time. And the eye of time is where all of the intelligence processes are happening, meaning that they're doing their surveillance of the target. They're they're researching. They're gathering weapons and manpower. They're making those decisions. They're they're doing dress rehearsals or maybe even seeing, can we fly on the airplanes with our box cutters? Okay. Well, once they get to the point where they feel like they are satisfied that the the plan has merit, then the M of time turns into sort of this moment of commitment, the moment of bang, if you will, when the attack happens, the attackers make their intentions known. Most self-defense only comes in at that moment when you're on the X of that attack and you're responding or reacting to this incident, okay? The problem with that is the bad guys have now chosen the time, the place, the weapons, and the circumstances under which the attack is happening. There's no forewarning. Now, if the bad guys win, maybe they have an escape plan. Maybe they have what we call an exploitation plan. It doesn't really matter at that point. That's Al-Qaeda taking credit and saying, we can do it again. What we're really concerned with from this predictive model is understanding the first three phases. So the concept is very simple. By question, you know, I usually ask my audiences, I'll I'll ask you, Nikki, do you think ordinary street criminals do the same thing? You know, do they go through this process of target selection, et cetera? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, they, they just, they do the same thing. It just happens maybe in a very compressed timeline, right? So you could be walking down the street at a concert, at a, at a restaurant, whatever it is, and be fully unaware that maybe of the hundred or so people that are around there, one of them is looking at people and going, no, 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 yeah, that one looks good for some reason. There's target selection happening. Well, they clearly have a method of attack in mind. They want to do something, rape, robbery, murder, assault, whatever it is. But the thing is, they don't still just go for it, because what if they guessed wrong? What if they chose the wrong target? You see, bad guys are all inherently afraid of one critical factor, and that is failure. They're afraid of running into a target that could equate to whatever it is that they're afraid of, whether that's going to jail, getting killed, failing in their mission as a terrorist, what have you. So what they're inherently designed to do is they want to test and probe that target. So the eye of time still occurs. It just takes the form of what we call an interview, more classically. So we're talking about just street violence, predatory violence. Someone might come up to you and say, hey, man, can I talk to you for a sec? Or they may try and follow you for a certain amount of time. There, There will be these indicators that occur along that 
pathway that if you're observant, you know what to look for, you will spot those indicators of the eye of time. Okay. Now to understand this, this idea holistically, when we go back full circle, the second question is, do you think you can avoid being targeted in the first place? I do. It's a logical question. And I would say a lot of my clients, when I ask that question the first time, and I ask it kind of in a misleading way, intentionally, the reality is they say, yeah, you can avoid it. But the reality of it is, Nikki, you can't. And the reason why you can't avoid being targeted entirely is because you don't control that factor. The bad guy does. You know, they're the one deciding if you are going to be targeted. In other words, you can do everything right in terms of avoidance and awareness and still be targeted. I'll give you two examples of that, if you can allow me to talk for a moment here on this. One example is in the workplace, right? So we're working in this in this uh, podcast. You're dealing with entrepreneurs, you know, high performers, executives, business owners. The concept is any one of us who employs others or who deals with people on a regular basis can be faced with, when you fired me, you destroyed my life, Okay even though you may have done everything right to try and set them on a positive trajectory, even though, you know, you have the, 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 the business or the, the executive has done everything to try and create a soft landing. It's not within your control to determine entirely how that person's going to receive that. The domestic version of that sounds like if I can't have you, no one can. All right. So the idea here is on both ends of that spectrum, any one of us could find ourselves having functionally done everything right and still being find ourselves being targeted. Yeah, that's fair. So, so this puts squarely the impetus, if you will, on the eye of time, right? We have to be able to recognize that eye of time. And this does not say we shouldn't have good behavior like situational awareness and avoid trouble. Don't go down the dark alleys, right? We can do things to influence whether we are targeted. Um, but the concept is, we want to know what those indicators are. So that's the framework. Now, the specifics of what are you looking for? I'll give you two really simplistically. Um, when we're talking about predatory violence, most of the time, there's some kind of an approach. Most of the time, you know, someone comes up to you and talks to you, right? Or approaches you. The very first indicator that you're being interviewed is your intuition, if you will, your radar that warns you and says, hey, creepy guy. I get a fear-based physiological reaction. The hair stands up on my neck. The chill runs up my spine, whatever it is. Just looking at this one component of that, right? And this is something that has been talked about a lot by self-defense trainers and experts throughout the years. The reality, though, is that most people, if they're walking down the street, someone approaches them and they encounter this dynamic and they, they immediately feel like, oh, creepy guy, right? I, I feel fear. I want to get away from this person. Most of the time, if we look and you don't see any hard evidence, you don't know what to look for specifically, and you don't see any hard evidence. He doesn't have a weapon. He's not doing anything overt. What ends up happening is we dismiss it. We say, ah, I'm just overreacting. You know, uh, I don't want to judge people or judge book by its cover. Um, you know, or we go into sort of like this, this, this complex, mental denial process between sort of dismissing our own better instincts and effectively, um, you know, getting into a social contract dynamic. And, you know, what happens is when we dismiss our intuition, 
we simply make ourselves more vulnerable and more likely to be surprised if that situation escalates. So the most important first level of defense, if you will, in terms of recognizing interview dynamics is trusting your gut and trusting that that intuitive vibe, that radar that will warn us in advance that we may be being targeted. Okay. Now, if we go a little bit deeper on that, Nikki, and this is something I talk about in my book extensively, we get into this, this layering of the sort of like the, 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 what I call the veils of denial in our brain. And I'll pull one out very specifically. There's a few that interrelate. One of them is what I call the veil of normalcy. You know, normalcy bias by definition is wanting things to be normal, even though there is evidence to the direct contrary. So imagine someone's walking down the street, you know, a woman's walking down the street. She sees a guy approaching her. She has this immediate gut reaction of a moment, a degree of fear reaction. The hair stands up on her neck. She gets a sinking feeling and her inner voice says creepy guy, right? Well, she looks and she doesn't see any real overt evidence. So she really wants to dismiss it because part of our psychological mechanism is that we simply don't want things to be bad. We don't want to consider that this person could try and harm us. So our brain actually starts to look for all the evidence of why it's actually normal and why we should and can just dismiss it. And one of the most important reasons why is because we've all been in those situations where we've had that vibe and it turned out to be nothing. So we've been sort of cognitively reinforced that it's probably nothing. So what we want to do is make sure that we don't get into that mental spin cycle of this normalcy bias, this veil of normalcy, all right? The second component to that is the social dynamic, which is a a very powerful one right now, where we don't want to judge people. And I totally get that. But what I want you to understand is that we're not talking about looking at someone and reading them and profiling them in some kind of demographic way. You know, what we're doing is we're trying to tune in to the indicators of someone's body language or maybe their predatory gaze or maybe the subtle cues that are below the surface that we can't put our finger on, we can't create a list of, but are there nonetheless that our brain and our body is picking up on and to to acknowledge that. And the idea here is that's not to be uh, profiling. It's the exact opposite because what we're talking about is really paying attention when we have a scarce reaction. If you think every time you see someone of a specific Uh, demographic category, and you think a negative thought, that is a biased thought. But if you only have that thought occasionally, and it only happens scarcely, you have to recognize that there's more information that's actually being uh, uh, processed by your brain that's creating the reaction. And that's how you start to hook in. So without specific details on how to look, where to look, what to look for, which I'm happy to get into, Um, I want you to understand the most general and most important is to simply trust your intuition, trust your radar, that if you're paying attention, you will get the warning signs, just don't dismiss them, okay? That's our normal habit, and it's a very bad one. Yeah, I I really appreciate you taking the time to break all this down for me, and I I can't wait to get a copy of your book. I collect signed copies of books, so if you could get one of those to me, I'd really appreciate it. Most definitely. Uh, Sam, 
Um, this has been a great interview. I'd like to have you back and I'd like to interview you on my men's podcast as well. When the book is uh, closer to coming out, because this interview will be out in three, four weeks, let's have you back on, uh, say maybe in um, late October, early November for the business podcast. Let's have you back on for the men's podcast right away. Let's mm -hmm. have you back on for this podcast. I'd like to have the book in front of me and I'd like to go through it chapter by chapter with you because I think that would be enlightening, fascinating. It'll help you sell a few books as well. So let's make sure that we do that. Okay. I would love that. Thank you, Nikki. Yeah, you bet. So Sam, we like to end off our episodes by asking you as our guest expert for lightning round bullet point. What are your top three expert action steps? These are your best pieces of business life, or even your area of expertise advice that you want my listener to take on to enhance their life, their business, their ability to protect themselves. But bullet point style, go. Top three. Top three. Okay. Number one, trust your intuition. All right. Pay attention to your environment and trust your intuition, even when you can't put your finger on it. All right. Uh, number two, enhance your intuition through training. Seek training. Seek to expand your knowledge base because intuition and your understanding of your radar is something that adapts and grows and is based on experience. And number three, remember, no matter what the situation, you are never helpless as long as you can retain the ability to think. That is your greatest asset. It is not your body. It is your mind and your mind controls your body. And just because someone wants to hurt you doesn't mean they can. You are the final arbiter in that equation. Sam, I got to say, your uh, three expert action steps are fantastic. And I remember Tim Larkin said something, that the most powerful weapon is the six inches between your ears. So you are echoing that in your own inimitable way. I greatly appreciate um, having had you on the show, um, as I said, as soon as we finish the recording, I'm going to book a time to have you on the men's show. And I'd like to book a time to have a further conversation with you on the business front as well and bring you back in a couple of months. David Grossman is a great man. And whenever he makes a recommendation, it's a top quality human being who really knows what they're talking about, delivers a ton of value, someone I personally enjoy speaking to, and someone who teaches me a great deal. So I, mean, I, got, I, I got everything to gain from listening to David Grossman. This is just a great reminder for that. Thanks, brother. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. Find out more about today's amazing guest, the legendary Sam Rosenberg. Go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or wherever you happen to listen to this episode, be it iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Google Play, YouTube, Rumble, or whatever. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.